bicycles have not been a part of what we describe as American history. So they're not a part of the story of America somehow, and they're therefore un-American. We don't think of them as part of our cities or part of our national story. They're an outsider status. And I, I don't know that I can fully explain that. Why are we so, why have we become so inured to uh, the level of violence that happens and how many people's lives are upended or ruined or ended by car crashes? There's still plenty of people in a leadership class in New York that think that riding transit is for schlubs and, uh, and bike riding is for kids. And thankfully that is changing. All right, so uh, hi, Don. Hey, Nick. How are you doing? We have Lindsay here, Lindsay Sturman, just waiting. And tonight we have uh, Angie Schmidt and James Longhurst, both bike authors, bike book authors. Uh, first up is... James Longhurst, if you want to just jump into it, we were going to chit chat about our week. Did you, what'd you do? On, uh, what did I do on a bike? What did you do on a bike? <laughs> what, did, what did I do on a bike this week? Uh, it's a global pandemic. And so therefore my life is upside down. So my usual, my usual commuting to work hasn't been happening for quite some time. So my, my, daily, my daily commuter sits lonely in, in the garage. But I did get out on a gravel ride uh, earlier this week, and oh, and then I took oh, I took the fat bike out and, and went and did a little just quick uh, dirt riding on our local trails because I'm not getting my set daily commute in. I just feel myself uh, getting flabbier and flabbier as I stay home. So I do try to get out, especially as the sun's going away, and get some uh, recreational rides in here. James, you're a historian of urban and environmental policy at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. Yes. So, and University of Wisconsin uh, in La Crosse uh, is not the same thing as University of Wisconsin in Madison, but uh, we're associated with the system. And I've uh, I've been writing about cities and as environments for uh, some time before I became a bicycle historian, and. Uh, that was my PhD in urban environmental policy. And so I sort of summarized this as saying, how did we end up designing cities that make us sick and uh, divide us one against each other and, uh, and sort of unequally uh, prioritize or endanger different groups? I mean, why did we make cities that are not good places to live in? And, and that's sort of the question that I've been um, poking at for a while now, and my first projects were writing about air pollution in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, because that's where I was living at the time. And so I really wanted to understand how citizens came to be a part of air pollution control. And that's important in, in Pittsburgh, and I like that project a lot. Uh, but it, it turns out that I can't really talk about that with, with too many people. When I, when I sort of expand beyond that to go talk to um, other audiences nationwide, some are interested and some aren't. But bicycles, people care about that and they care about that in sometimes outsized ways. It makes them either passionate or makes them uh, unaccountably angry. And so this became my, my second major project after my dissertation and for my first book was to look at, at 
bicycle histories as part of this understanding why cities are um, inequitable and unsafe and, and unhealthy. How do we how do we make a place to live that is bad to live? And you can examine that through the the topic of of bicycle history. And people care about that sometimes in in ways that are um, not healthy uh, for them. They get riled up or um, infuriate as as I'm certain that you all know as bicycle advocates the the bike lash is greater than the stakes in in many ways you know sometimes we're just talking about a couple of feet and a little bit of paint here and there and then and yet people become infuriated um, uh, by the entire discussion so I mean that was part of my my question you know not just why are cities the way they are but why why is it so difficult to involve the public in uh, bicycle advocacy and and designing transportation systems that are safer and more healthy and and, and equitable and when, go ahead Lindsay. where do you think all the anger comes from <laughs> thanks for putting your thumb on the question that i didn't actually answer uh so i i think that that there's lots of responses to that and certainly some of that is is tribalism that there's an identification of defending your territory and rights and sort of this in group and out group and um, certainly um, people who drive automobiles uh, get enculturated into a, a tribe without even really knowing it and it becomes quite um, ingrained in them to defend the the space and control and if something sort of destabilizes those assumptions of control, the, the backlash is enormous. So I think that tribalism is part of it. I think that we have um, an amazing structure of automobility that is in some ways in, invisible and yet stacks the deck in, in ways that when you, when you pull out a card, it, it sort of, it threatens people's understanding of their entire world. Um, but I also, as my particular kind of historical research, I, I particularly wanted to look not just at people's mentalities and their, their culture and their, their tribalism, because it, that's not the kind of history that I'm skilled at. Or um, I look at decisions, uh, policies, and institutions. How did we design systems? And I, it's become pretty clear to me looking at the last 150 years of decision-making in law and policy and infrastructure and, and other ways, we really designed um, a system that sort of lies to itself. It, it has the base level legal assumption that different users have equal legal rights to road space. And yet you and I and everyone who's listening to me knows that that legal or philosophical right uh, is um, a lie in the face of Newtonian physics, in, in the face of uh, enormously powerful, fast, large, heavy um, vehicles sharing the same exact space with um, a, a child's, you know, 16-inch wheel um, bike. And, and, and then also at the same, same time, we've designed roads that have this lie of that they're shared space between pedestrians and bicycles um, and, and automobiles and buses and concrete mixers and all these other things. And 
yet they're not really shared at all. They're just, it's just a free for all. So I, I, I think that question is, is a great one. Why are people so angry? Um, and I'm, I'm not certain that we have um, the best answer to that, but, but my answer would be policy, would be structures. So your book, I don't think I, we mentioned the, your book. It's, it's called Bike Battles, A History of Sharing the American Road. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Uh, and you were named Advocate of the Year by the Wisconsin Bicycle Federation in 2016. So you're an advocate. And it was a very successful book, right? It was reviewed in a bunch of magazines, Wall Street Journal, Journal of American History, named one of the best new bike books of 2015 by Momentum. It's in translation in Spanish. And uh, I don't mean, I don't know about is it a bestseller or anything? But I mean, this kind of book. Well, no, I mean, so what? One of the things that I would say is I'm I'm an academic and a and a scholar, and uh, my my intention of success is is not uh, selling a lot of copies of a book or or becoming a bestseller. It's, my intention of success is taking ideas that are um, developed or used in scholarly research and making them more accessible for the public. And then also sort of making the public aware that there's um, scholarship that's going on about things that people care about. And those, those two things, the scholarly world, the academic world, the peer reviewed research and what people will actually pay money for to read, those are often two different worlds. And so this book is supposed to be a crossover book so I write things that are specifically for scholars and academics, and some of those are, are not really amazingly fun to read. And you know, sometimes I'm I'm writing for the general public. And this this book is supposed to cross over and do both. And it's a it's a balancing act to do that. And and scholarly historians are not really great writers sometimes. And I think I put myself in that as well. And this is this was a tough balancing act. I think I think we we threaded the needle a little bit, but it is sometimes, and it, it's helped by the fact that that people care about the bicycle and they, they find it a, and so I can sort of pull them into some other discussions that scholars have, including um, scholarly um, history and its approach to social history, to ideas of the commons or a shared space that is um, you know, fought over, but also can be depleted, but also can be managed and historical ideas of contingency and, and uh, path dependency. So I think I can sort of pull people, you know, take the interest in the bicycle and pull them into some of these scholarly discussions. Yeah, how did you choose to write about bikes? I think, I, so all of us are bicyclists when we're kids, right? And I had done some mountain biking in college, but I, I certainly didn't think of myself as a cyclist. I wasn't a biking advocate. I didn't ride a lot uh, when I lived in Pittsburgh and went to grad school there. Um, it was before Pittsburgh became a bike place. It's a bike place now, but it wasn't uh, just 20 years ago when I was there. And uh, I just so happened to be starting a new job here in Wisconsin in a small college town when the 2008 gas um, and it's fuel was really expensive uh, there for a little bit. And I said, well, I'm going to ride, ride my bicycle to work. And it seemed to make a great deal of sense, you know, very compact college town, flat um, uh, contours, and people wanted to run me over. And I could not, and it, it really was shocking, the, the anger and response. 
that I got. And so it sort of, I just so happened to be looking for a new research project at the time. I was starting to bicycle and starting to care about it more. And also, you know, I was doing, being sort of everyday cyclist and I was doing more recreational cycling at the same time because the biking here is fantastic. Um, and it became clear that this was a point of conflict and I was fascinated by, by why that was so. And so it sort of, uh, I wasn't a bicycle historian. I didn't know anything. And I, I went into it from this viewpoint of understanding cities and was just blown away. I was just shocked at what I, what I found. So what is a surprising example of a surprising thing that, that you found? Uh, I, there's, there's several, I mean, one of the, one of the really surprising things that I found is that, um, scholarly historians, and I, I, when I say this, I don't mean to disparage anyone because anyone can write history. Uh, but there's, you know, people who get PhDs and teach at universities and, and write textbooks and, and write peer reviewed things like that, that, that set American history or, or history at large. And so I, this is what I call scholarly history. And scholarly historians do not care about the bicycle. They have not for decades. And my fields, um, which were environmental history and policy history and urban history, the, the major journals, the peer reviewed journals in that, I, the first thing that historians do is they're like, well, what have other people written about this? And so I went to those journals and I tried to find, you know, what are the articles and we think of bicycles as city machines, but the Journal of Urban History did not have a single peer-reviewed scholarly article on the bicycle within it. The Journal of Environmental History really didn't have one either. There was maybe one that was halfway about it. And the Journal of Policy History, which is my journal, had one, and it was mine, and it was the only one. And so this was my big shock, is that historians did not take it seriously. And I think that this matters because bicycles have not been a part of what we describe as American history. So they're not a part of the story of America somehow. And they're therefore un-American. We don't think of them as part of our cities or a part of our national story. They're an outsider status. And so it turned out sort of everything to me was surprising that there were huge chunks of really easily researched bicycle history that had not been told previously. And so I found, and you know, this is in, in fairly short order, I found things that people had not previously found or written about, um, including the story of the side paths from the 1890s, and then some, some surprising things about the victory bike in World War II. So a lot of it was really surprising for me. So what is a side path? Oh, okay. <laughs> So, uh, so the book is the book is organized. The book is organized into different bike battles, and I I wanted to say that this is not the history of bicycles. This is instead I'm picking particular policy fights that people had in different decades, and I wanted to like name it, you know, periodic policy disagreements. And my editor was like, hell no, and so it became bike battles. Right. And so the first battle is about getting the bicycle named a legal vehicle. And that's a really important fight. And that's before the automobile even exists. And this legal status of vehicle, uh, we all know, is, is a thing we cling to as advocates and it's extremely important. And it happens 
basically before the paved road exists and before the automobile then becomes popular. And then the, the, the second story I found was that uh, before the roads were paved, before the Good Roads Movement was successful, there was this nationwide movement to create a separated infrastructure network just for bicycles. And it was going to be called the side paths. And in the present, you know, side paths are sort of derided. But what was going to happen was that they were going to be funded at the county level. And the idea would be there would be a network of bicycle only paths alongside every um, every street in between uh, major settlements in between cities. And the, the need for this was because the roads were terrible. The roads were dirt and they were ruddy and they're muddy. And these were going to be improved side paths. And this movement, they envisioned a network connecting cities all across the continent. And of course, this doesn't exist. So you and I are sitting here thinking, well, why can't I ride my bicycle on a bicycle specific network from New York to California? Um, if this was envisioned. And, and the answer is they made a mistake in their funding structure uh, and it was sort of funded voluntarily. And when the bicycle boom of the 1890s went away, the funding went away too. So, and then when the Good Roads Movement actually succeeded um, a few years later, the Good Roads Movement was to use taxes to pay for road uh, improvement, which was crazy at the time. What actually happened is the Good Roads Movement just came along and they took the existing road and they paved over the side paths next to it. And so if you go to major cities in the United States that had side path networks, in some ways those paths, they're still there. They're sort of ghostly paths underneath, underneath the, the paved road. And you go to Rochester, New York now, which had a fantastic, um, great side path network in the 1890s, early turn of the century, 1905 or so, they don't even remember that that existed for a while because it was physically paved over and ceased to exist um, at that time. And basically the only place in the United States where the side paths were kept was uh, Minneapolis. Uh, and that that is the backbone of their existing network. So this, the side path movement, nobody had written about at that point. And what about the victory bike? I think that's more known. Sure. And so the victory, so, and, you know, it's sort of picking these battles as you, as you go through the book. And uh, I, I write about the, the side path movement and then I write about the coming of the automobile in chapter three and chapter four is about World War II. And in World War II, the, the bicycle had become, you know, a toy for children by that point. But during World War II with gasoline and more importantly, rubber rationing, natural rubber rationing for, for tires, uh, the federal government proposed to replace automobile trips with um, a basically a subsidized uh, victory bike. They would, in, in, they, instead of stopping new bicycle production altogether, they would mandate a, an adult only model for bicycles and it would be stripped down and simplified. And this would sort of replace cars for a while for, for, uh, for adult travel during World War II. 
Um, and this was the story that I knew and that lots of people knew that the Victory Bike program had existed. It's a federal rationing program. It distributes these uh, Victory bicycle designs. What I found when I started looking at it is it's a Victory Bike program that has been written about and praised and people sort of remember it fondly as part of the imagined shared sacrifice of, of the good war. Um, and it didn't actually exist. It, it existed in name. And at the beginning of the war uh, in 1942, when people were very, very nervous, very nervous about uh, economic controls, uh, there's, there's some victory bike production. But basically, basically the, um, the targets, the numbers that were promised by the federal government never came to exist. And the victory bike program decreased in numbers throughout the war until before the end of the war, really in the year before the end of the war, uh, bicycle production is eliminated completely. And so it takes out entire swaths of, of bicycle manufacturing companies in the United States. I, I think the Victory Bike Program, instead of being sort of a laudable example of, of shared sacrifice in the war, it, it actually largely destroyed American bicycle manufacturing and, and associated the bicycle in American adult minds with sacrifice for the war. And after the war, quite logically, um, people want the largest cars and the most gasoline that they can find. So that's the victory bike story that I found that was sort of surprising to me. This is great stuff. I'm going to read your book uh, <laughs> more, more thoroughly. We have a question, uh, Miriam Pinsky. Yeah, I was curious. Do you know if there were, if bicycles were considered like vehicles mm -hmm. legally, um, were there early like license requirements and registration fees for cycle for bicycles and cyclists? Yes and no. And um, it's we sort of need to distinguish between licensing drivers and licensing um, vehicles, which is sometimes known as registration. And uh, these things, these words sometimes get blurred together. So uh, one of the ways they paid for side path is you you bought you know a token each year and you you rode around with that to make certain that people saw that you had paid your money for it. And when you go on to eBay right now, people are uh, will sell those as bicycle licenses and they're not. And one of the reasons that they're not is certainly in the uh, 1890s and 1910s, uh, the courts are largely in agreement that the roads are free for everyone, that they're a public right-of-way. And they kept on striking down whenever um, someone would try to either license uh, vehicles uh, or drivers, uh, they would strike that down as an infringement on freedom of, of movement. And so licensing requirements for cyclists, no, not, and not the name I, that I'm aware of. Uh, and it really took the arrival of the automobile, which which some people know that the the automobile in its in its earliest um, appearances was just a bloodbath. I mean, it just was shocking the the number of people it killed, and so it was that bloodbath that sort of uh, maybe bloodbath's a little strong. So it was it was the damage, it was the uh, the danger and the nuisance that basically uh, convinced courts to consider. Um, automobiles needing licensing. Um, and it, so early cyclists almost never. And bicycle licensing programs as, as they've existed in the United States 
have almost never been about licensing legal vehicles. They've almost always been about stolen property return systems. Um, and more recently, they've become sort of anti-bicycle anti systems. Does that, does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, totally. Um, it seems like the first driver's licenses were in like, you know, 1905-ish already. Yeah. Um, so, which- And some of, some of those would get st struck down on a state-by-state -state basis because yeah. some states didn't like it, the idea at all. Also a follow-up, um, did you rely on like Peter Norton's book and Clay McShane's history of Cultural <laughs> These are my, these are my, some of my favorite works. I mean, yeah. Clay McShane uh, is, is one of the first things I read because he uh, works with, with my doctoral advisor, Joel Tarr. They wrote a book together called The Horse in the City, which if you want your, your mind blown, read that one. Uh, and Peter, Peter Norton's a fantastic historian associated with the, the T2M group. And I, I, those are great works and that's really where I started. Um, but since, I just wanna make it clear, since Bike Battles came out several years ago, there's been a wave of really fantastic bicycle scholarship and mobility scholarship. And I, you know, I'll call out Evan Friss uh, for fantastic work here, but um, there's just some, been some recent work on the legal structure of um, the right to roads, um, including uh, collision at the crossroads, uh, Genevieve Carpeo, if you haven't read that, and, and policing the open road, uh, Sarah Sale, which is SEO, which is, which is fantastic and mind blowing. I'd love to hear your thoughts about being both an advocate and a historian. And do you feel like does being an advocate a factor bias you in any ways in terms of being a, a scholar? Um, but also as an advocate, what do you dream of? What would you love to see? I, uh, so I, several things I say is that um, being in both an advocate and, and a, an academic researcher gets me into trouble sometimes because it's associated in many people's minds that I am hopelessly biased, that I have an outcome that I want. And the outcome in general is for me not to be run over, but I'd also like other people not to be run over. That would be um, preferential. Um, but uh, the, the type of history that I do uh, in both environmental history and policy history is a little more um, accepting of this involvement of the engaged scholar. And so this is not out of the realm of possibility. Um, that, that one would be both an advocate and scholar. But I've, I've had people be very concerned about, about my work and, and accuse me of, of a biased outcome. You know, speaking of side paths, when I talk about side paths, they've been so, so thoroughly forgotten that when I've talked about them in some ways in, in Rochester, New York, where they've, you know, people do not remember these at all, people have accused me of making it up um, to, to have an, an outcome that I want. And all I need to do is say, you know, <laughs> I did the research in your library. You can go there. Historians show their work. You can go there. Uh, what, what would I want as an, um, as an advocate? Uh, I, I think that uh, one of the things I, I said to Nick when we were starting is, is sometimes it's difficult for me to, to speak at a, at a national level or at a state level and to talk about bike his, history and, and what I want out of a just and safe and equitable and sustainable city. And then I go back to my own hometown as an advocate and I lose the battles that I'm involved in constantly. I cannot get a bike lane to save my life. I just lose and lose and lose and lose. And really, as I became more involved in 
in bike advocacy here in the state of Wisconsin, Wisconsin has absolutely plummeted uh, from the heights of bike advocacy in the last, since 2008, really since I've been involved, uh, it's not my fault. Uh, Wisconsin has really made a series of, of terrible decisions at the state level that have really hampered, I think, our future and future development. So uh, my dreams as a, as a bike advocate are in fact small. And what I want to do is to encourage everyone to do the work where they're at, to not get lost in the big ideas, but to do the work in their neighborhood, in their community. And I can sort of cap things off by saying, I often quote my uh, grandmother uh, when she talked about, you know, working in the garden or working on the farm. And she would say, pick a row and hoe it, you know, meaning there's so many weeds and there's so much work that needs to be done. Quit talking about it. Pick a row and hoe it. Do the work where you're at. And it will add up to something uh, much larger. That would be my dream as an advocate. Nice. All right. Pick a row and hoe it. I like that. I'm going to use that somewhere. Well, it'll come out of something. Um, James, thanks for coming on the show. And, um, Lindsay, uh, Nick, uh, Miriam, thank you for your questions. Yeah. Thank you, James. We're, we're going to now swing over to Lindsay Sturman, who is doing in, an interview with the legendary Angie Schmidt, who um, I've read tons of her articles in Streets Blog. I'm pretty excited about this interview. So let's take it away, Lindsay. Okay. Hi. Hi. Um, so Angie, you're a Cleveland-based transportation writer, a longtime, the longtime national editor of Streets Blog, the founder and principal of 3MPH, Planning and Consulting, um, and a self-described SUV hater and mom of two. <laughs> I love your, you, I love you on Twitter, by the way. Oh, uh, thanks. Um, and you wrote this book, which I read and I could not put down. Um, right of way, raise class in the silent epidemic of pedestrian deaths in America. Oh, that's so nice. Um, yeah, and it was, it's just so human. I mean, really, I was, I was crying reading about just you so humanize the stories. They were so heartbreaking, you know, as a mom, obviously, it's just so heartbreaking to read about the other moms, you know. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I really, I really feel for them. Um, and I, I just, I, I have so many questions, but I guess first is what inspired you to write the book and what sort of first got you interested in this topic? And was there an epiphany moment? Uh, yeah, people always ask me this question. Um, so I wrote about um, transit, walking, and biking issues for so long at Streets Blog. I, I was a reporter there for about nine years. So I just had a really a lot of knowledge that had sort of built up. And um, uh, I thought it was a pedestrian safety was sort of overlooked and compared to the other topics. Um, about 10 times as many pedestrians are killed in the United States every year as cyclists. And I think also, like you, you already touched on, um, I think that uh, victims of traffic violence, to, to adopt that term, they often just don't get their stories told. It's considered um, such like a boring kind of or a, such a common way to die that, um, you know, we see with other major killers like the opioid epidemic, you know, sometimes now some very sympathetic profiles. And I thought... Um, 
I think it's sort of a problem. One of the reasons we can't seem to address traffic deaths is because we never hear people's stories. They don't have an opportunity to tell them. So again, like you kind of mentioned, after I had kids, I have two children and um, the oldest is five. I think like one of my greatest fears is something happening to them. And in the United States, um, that's the number one reason parents bury their children is because of uh, traffic deaths. You talk, you talk about this thing in the book, which is it's the strange tolerance we have in our culture for traffic deaths. And it's, it's just such a mystery to me. I know, I know, I know. I think, um, and I, I don't know that I can fully explain that. Why are we so, why have we become so inured to uh, the level of violence that happens and how many people's lives are upended or ruined or ended um, by car crashes. Uh, and, uh, you know, we are really falling behind in the United States um, compared to our peers in the rest of the wealthy world. We have a lot of times, like compared to Canada, we have about double the per capita traffic fatality rate. So if we could if we could even match Canada, we could uh, save about 20,000 lives a year in the United States. But um, I just don't think there's very wide recognition that um, these deaths are tied to decisions people make. We make actual decisions, certain people do, and a lot of times they're these sort of behind the scenes bureaucratic types, and um, so it's not very sexy, the process it, it happens in, but are making actual decisions that say, you know, the, uh, reducing vehicle delay a little bit for a certain number of people is worth a certain number of people potentially dying or being severely injured over. Right. And I, you, ha, you, you talk, you, you quote um, the man, the man's last stand <laughs> said um, that this great quote that cars are the last defense of manhood. And I, I just wonder how much do you feel like the big car movement, I don't know what we're calling it, but with the grills and, you know, five feet tall hoods. Um, and is it, and somebody joked about like, really they just ship it a machine gun on top of it and then then you'll start selling them um and is is and then cutting the funding for safe routes to schools is there a connection between these big cars and obsession our obsession with guns um and I, you know i just wonder if it's do, do you see a connection between you know uh, a a world where they're winners and losers <laughs> One of the themes in the book, just for people who haven't read it, is that one of the causes we've had this big increase in pedestrian deaths over the last 10 years, about a 50% increase. And one of the reasons that's occurring is because um, people aren't really driving sedans too much anymore. Everyone's trading sedans for SUVs, crossovers that are bigger, and they hit pedestrians higher on the body. So you and uh, I only briefly touched on it. You kind of picked that out in the book, but um, seems to be sort of tied to some of this toxic masculinity stuff that's really bubbling to the surface right now and is really come through a lot in some of the sad political events we've had recently. It's sort of, I think our society is like coming and glued a little bit. And it's when you look at these, like I use this image in a lot of my presentations, that's a picture of my son when he's four years old and he's standing in front of a lifted Ford F-250 and um, he barely clears the bumper. Uh, it's just to sort of demonstrate how large they've gotten. And uh, it, I, I don't know that I can fully explain it. I did come across um, an interesting academic article recently. Someone sent me where they called it like, 
petro masculinity and they said there's and I, other people have drawn connections between like you know the settler colonialism and this idea of you know natural resources are it's our sort of duty to exploit them and to you know bring nature under control um and so i i do think there's definitely something to that and i also think um because I'm really interested in um, feminism. <laughs> so this is like cars and feminism. Uh, there's not a lot of discussion there, but I have some theories about it. And one of my theories is, sorry if I'm going too much down a rabbit hole with this, but like women do a lot of the work of um, sustaining life, of raising children. Like obviously the you know men are, a lot of men are really involved in parenting, but still women are doing the majority of that work. And I think that the sort of callousness we have about life when it comes to guns, when it comes to the kind of um, attitude we have about traffic deaths on a lot of different issues in the United States does sort of come back to like the superior political power of men compared to women. But I, I can't say for certain that if women had more political power, we would be addressing this better. That's just one of my one of my hunches. And actually, historically, because we just had, I know, someone on talking about history, um, when there was like a some some political backlash when cars were first introduced in the United States, that movement was led by women. Um, at like women whose children were killed, the National Safety Council. And now I wrote a little bit in my book about um, this new movement called Families for Safe Streets. And again, and even Mothers for Drunk Driving, again, was a woman-led movement. Um, so I, I do think there's a little bit something to that. For people who haven't read the book, um, what do you feel like are the most important takeaways you want people to have? Oh, <laughs> good question. You got me kind of on the spot. So one of the big themes of the book um, is I think it, it's a problem that comes um, comes down a lot to inequality in the United States. And one of my one of my grand theories about this problem is um, that for the most part, well-off white people do not do much walking in the United States outside of a few little sweet spots like Boston, you know, some gentrified neighborhoods you know, Brooklyn, there's, there's some exceptions, um, but they're not finding themselves in the kind of position people are who are um, standing, waiting for buses by the side of seven lane arterial roads in Florida, where the traffic's going by at 40, 45 miles per hour. And maybe they have a baby in a stroller that they um, are responsible for as well. So I think that um, it's one of the reasons that it hasn't been taken seriously or even recognized sort of as a problem because um, as a result, the more powerful and privileged people in our society just aren't very sympathetic to the problem and aren't experiencing it firsthand. Right, and it's interesting because you talk about traffic and, um, and you have a quote that right now, everything is governed by the need to move cars and the fear that if we don't move cars quickly, something bad will happen. Um, the, you're, you quote somebody saying that, and because yeah. so for the privileged people who are in cars, I, I guess one of the things I was drawing from your book was that people are so stressed about traffic, they're blinded to these deaths because all they can think about is how am I going to get places faster because we're all stuck in traffic. Yeah, yeah, I know, and it is it's it's sort of difficult to solve. But one of the one of the big problems I think is 
gets back to, I, I'm, I'm sure this was discussed on your previous, with your previous guest also, but this concept of jaywalking and sort of, um, I think there's this like really irrational anger sometimes towards pedestrians because of just sort of the way we've defined um, who has a right to occupy street space. You know, I, I think that the um, traffic safety authorities and the media have done a real disservice to folks and often with their reporting and with their messaging sort of imply that um, pedestrians who are jaywalking and even sometimes if they're not, um, are sort of deserving of being hit or um, that it's excusable that it did happen. So um, it's it's very deeply ingrained, that sort of attitude now, and it's very dangerous. And I, I was so stunned by how many things in the codes are making it dangerous in all of our, how we design everything is making it so dangerous. Yeah. So I have this one chapter in the book where we talk about there's these these really obscure rules that sort of govern the way streets are designed. Um, And a couple of them are just engineering manuals and the engineering manuals um, like one as an example, they they tell the the street designers how to time traffic lights. And one, one thing they tell them is to time them the walk signal so that a person that walks at 3.5 feet per second can clear the intersection on time, which is sort of like they they're they're sort of being programmed for like a middle-aged, pretty fit man. They're not being programmed for like an elderly person. They're not being programmed by and large for someone who uses a mobility device or a child. Um, so there's a lot of bias built into those formulas and the process for developing them is sort of secretive and doesn't really, um, it approaches the problem from a very narrow lens. Um, so there, there really does need to be reform um, sort of across the industry. And uh, a lot of times these, these sort of bad outcomes are kind of baked into our institutions and our processes. And do you feel like, what, what gives you hope right now? You, you talk about some things you'd love to see in the conclusion, but maybe you could yeah. share with me. Like, what would you love to, what would you love to see? Well, I, I mean, I do think that there, there is a lot wider recognition now. I think like a lot of, um, almost all, even, so I've been reporting about this for like 10 years now, and I've even seen quite an evolution, especially in the engineering profession during that time. So I think a lot of the younger engineers really get it. Um, and even in like one thing that does give me hope is so I live in I live in Cleveland, Ohio, which we're not on the you know cutting edge of traffic safety reforms. But um, I was out recently in a, a suburb. It's sort of a working class suburb called Parma. It's like the Drew Carey suburb, <laughs> sort of famous. Um, but they they had a um, they had a mall there, like a dead mall, and that they re, they redeveloped. This is not very inspiring, <laughs> I think about it, but um, they redeveloped it as a big box center, basically. That's sort of typical of what's happening. And, um, you know, uh, the way they, the way that they designed it just has evolved a little bit. It used to be, you know, you, you had a Walmart or whatever, and it was set back, and then you had an enormous parking lot. But now you see a lot of times they have put a little, the smaller stores sort of front the street. So they're a little more walkable. And they, they took, I mean, they still have big parking lots, 
but they um, included uh, a sidewalk in one portion of them. So they made like some effort and they also did some things with um, green infrastructure to try and help with drainage. But anyway, the, the fact that there's been an evolution on big box store parking lots that has made it out to Parma, Ohio, is encouraging like that they're that we're starting to evolve and think about this stuff um so so yeah i would love to see i would love to see some more of these ideas sort of penetrate into the suburbs um especially as we have more suburbanization of poverty in the united states and that's where so many americans live i mean that and that's actually one of my other questions is that do you feel like there's an sort of an inherent conflict between obviously cars and people and cities and cars like do you feel like they that that there's a problem there the way they fit together just inherently yeah i mean yeah it's so complicated i mean i did this presentation with this guy he's really a fascinating guy and i write about him in the book his name's jorge canes he calls himself pia tonito and he is a pedestrian safety advocate in Mexico City. And he wears a Lucha Libre style costume. And he was like out in the streets. I mean, this guy is such a hero, um, raising awareness about this problem in Mexico City. And they've, they've made all this progress. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little off track, but I did a presentation with him and he, he, put, up a, he put up a picture of Mexico City um, when it, um, you know, in prehistory when it was um, an indigenous city. And he's saying there are almost as many people living on the site or near this site um, at that time. And they didn't, they didn't have any use for um, like highways. They didn't have to do any of this. It was just, they were living more in harmony, um, you know, with the environment. And it's, we're just like creating, um, you know, all this work for ourselves by building the highways, building the cars, where before we could just, we could access a lot of our needs by foot. Um, uh, but that being said, I think like, it is very complicated because we have the shifts going on in the United States where there, there has been um, more well-off people moving into cities and potentially displacing low-income folks who end up in potentially more car dependent locations. So we have to be really sensitive about that. And, um, uh, you know, I think that, I, I think that it is, it is pretty complicated. I, I do think, yes, like, um, yes, cars and cities <laughs> um, are incompatible in some ways, but, um, Fixing it is really complicated. <laughs> it's really complicated. Of all the cities you looked at in the book, where, where what are you? What city were you most excited by? And par the cities that you looked at to see what? Yeah, they yeah, good question. New York is definitely a leader, I think, um, and I use them as an example a lot. Although a lot of people in New York are really disappointed <laughs> with what's going on there. They did in New York City um, in 2018. They got to the lowest traffic fatality rate they've had in 100 years, basically since the since cars came into the city in a big way, the lowest rate. So, but they're still much higher than London. 
or um, on a per capita basis, maybe falling behind some of their international peers. Another city I use as a good example in my book that's a little bit more surprising is Detroit. And I think Detroit's been really bold and has done some good things and has made some great progress also. What about Cleveland? If you could do anything to Cleveland, what would we do? Hmm. Good question. One of the big points I make in the book and in all my presentations is that neighborhoods of color and low-income neighborhoods really need streets, pedestrian safety, infrastructure the most. Those are the neighborhoods where people do the most walking and they've been discriminated against. They've been passed over for the kind of treatments they need. So um, pretty much in any city, if uh, that, that's sort of the, the number one thing that needs to be addressed is, um, and you can map out sort of in every city, usually there's a handful of streets or just a few streets where, um, a disproportionate amount of these kind of deaths and injuries occur. Um, but yeah, it's, it's sort of the lower income neighborhoods and the neighborhoods of color that, um, that need attention and it needs to be, also driven by sort of the local knowledge from the neighborhoods. What really are the um, missing elements there? Because um, people interact, you know, differently with their environment in different places and there's just different, different issues. Sometimes it, it's a little bit difficult to recognize. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like change is coming? Do you feel like there's something in the air? Hmm. Good question. I, you know, I, I think it's sort of, I think it's sort of difficult to say. And I think like sometimes things can sort of plot along and people will work on, if people work on it and care about it and talk about it where it won't seem like much is changing. And then all of a sudden um, with some other issues, I feel like occasionally there's a big breakthrough. Um, like uh, one example is sort of like the discussion about rape culture. I think like, um, you know, feminists sort of talked about that and used that term amongst themselves for a long time. And then all of a sudden, you know, Harvey Weinstein and Me Too, and now, and then it became sort of part of mainstream discourse. And I still don't think like everything has changed about, you know, sexual harassment or sexual assault since the Harvey Weinstein story either, you know, um, it's sort of a long road. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know, it's difficult to predict. I think it's definitely possible, um, that things could change or could change quickly. I think that things have already started to change, but obviously we have a long way to go. And, um, there's so much in our culture that sort of promotes, um, whatever the opposite of safety is. Um, some, I mean, so much of our cultural influences are like car commercials um, and movie, car chase movies, you know? Um, and it's, it's really difficult, I think, for some of the advocacy to penetrate such a large audience as those kind of influences do. Yeah, it might be. Oh, right, no, you go. The opposite of safety, maybe insecurity. Yeah, yeah, that might be good. Sometimes I get hung up trying to think of the perfect word because I'm like used to writing. But it's also like insecurity and aggression. Yeah. Like when you think about the, the the having these big cars and the the 
And it's almost like bikes and pedestrians versus um, cars. It's almost like an unfair because cars are, you know, they're, they're Porsches are cool. Like <laughs> a lot of design goes into them. Yeah. 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 It's like all, it's really tied up in capitalism. Um, and there, so much effort goes into making people want and aspire to that too. Um, and it's really effective. Right. Um, so, well, so any, what are you working on now? So um, I've just, I've been spending a lot of time actually promoting this book. I've been doing a lot of speaking um, and my, I um my, I have two children who are at home now at one kid in online kindergarten. So that's taking up some of my time too. Um, but I have been trying to launch, um, a business based around this. Um, and I, I just wanted to try and, um, see if I couldn't advance some of this stuff like in real life. <laughs> so I'm trying to, um, continue sort of working on this and that I'm hopeful, you know, I'll be able to find the support I need to do it, um, to partner with um, cities or agencies that, that really wanna work on this. Um, but I think with the pandemic, <laughs> everyone's budgets are, so we'll sort of see. And, um, you know, we could get a big infrastructure bill from the Biden administration. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next year, I think. Yeah, he seems in his heart to be a train guy, a bike guy, a you know, a pedestrian guy somehow. Yeah, I think he'll he'll um, have a good staff, but um, Congress is the one that sets the transportation budget. So, um, I, I Democrats did have a pretty progressive transportation bill sort of written that they passed in the house but um, couldn't get through the Senate. So if if we if the Democrats won the two Georgia Senate races, we could get um, some pretty progressive federal policy, but we'll see. If not, I think we will get something much more modest, <laughs> but still there's gonna be opportunities. Mm -hmm. I think we're out of time. Well, awesome. Well, it was really nice to meet you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thank you. And I couldn't put your book down. <laughs> Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. I've read almost all of Angie's uh, articles on Streets Blog. I used, to be, I used to be a Streets Blog fiend. And Angie oh, really? Well, um, <laughs> if you do want to, I know it's on sale. Like the ebook is on sale right now through mm -hmm. Island Press or through, I, I won't even mention <laughs> the other retailer I was going to mention. Um, one. But, and but, yeah, name of the book one more time. It's called Right of Way. And the publisher is Island Press. And um, there is a discount. Uh, you, you could tap into a discount with if you use my last name as a discount code, Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-T-T. On the, uh, on the, on the website? Island Press website. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Island Press is the name of the publisher. And so, the, again, the book's called Right of Way. Okay, cool. I'm looking at it right now. Ready to hit the buy button. <laughs> Like I said, the ebook is also on sale right now too. It's half Something price. about books in paper form. I, I, I know. Just, yeah. Apparently, I've sold like next to no ebooks. Everyone wants to have the like paper book. 
They can take the ebooks away from you. They'll do that sometimes. They'll delete it. Oh, really? I would. Uh, I must be cheap because I would just. <laughs> if it was me, I would buy the cheaper one. Oh. Okay. Well, thank you. And is there a uh, social media that we follow you on or that? Um, you know? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle, it's kind of embarrassing, is Shmangi, S-C-H-M-A-N-G-E-E. <laughs> okay. My business again is 3MPH, um, planning and consulting. If, um, if you're trying to hunt down my email, um, it's just Angie at 3MPHplanning.com. Okay. All right. The legendary all right thanks thanks again you guys thank you great to meet you you too thanks Lindsay. take care thank you Lindsay, for conducting a really interesting interview that was great so we appreciate you here what do, what do we have next nick this is philip leff and i found him on twitter yes i thought you had an interesting tweet today and you you had a thread where people were were jumping on and it was like an active thread. You want to you want to tell us what it was about locking locks? Sure. This was uh, this was quite a little unnerving experience I had with my bike this morning. Uh, actually, locked up in Lower Manhattan, and I returned to my bike, and uh, uh, a random gentleman on the corner came up to me and said, "Is this your bike?" And I go, "Yeah, why?" And he points at it and the locks, the lock, um, the U-lock is basically cut through about two thirds of the way. It is literally hanging on by a thread. Um, and apparently um, the only thing that stopped this thief from running off my bike was, might've been the, the intervention of, of, this, uh, of this gentleman on the corner. So I came into, you know, about that much of, uh, of my bike uh, disappearing. And that was, uh, that was not a fun way to begin my morning, uh, for sure. You know, it just struck me again that there's no safe lock. And no. an angle grinder can cut through your lock, like the New York kryptonite, in two minutes. Sure. Yeah, and and the the lock I had it, it's the, the the if if your listeners are familiar with the Kryptonite series, it's the yellow. It's allegedly the strongest. Um, oh, I have the, the New York lock um, designed for for New York, and um, yeah, uh, you know, an angle grinder can still cut through it. And I think um, what I mentioned in my tweet was that you know an angle grinder used to be a tool that you know you would have in a shop. But anyone can walk into Home Depot and for $50 purchase a very powerful portable angle grinder that, um, you know, can make quick work of just about anything. Um, I have a couple. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, it, it, again, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a useful tool in the hands of, uh, of, of, people who need it for their work and it just has this pretty negative side effect of making bike theft uh incredibly simple as somebody who who um is a much more casual biker than i think you guys have they ever just tried to create a bike with like a lock like a car you know it's uh the 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 issue is just that even if anything's locked um 
the heaviest bike's going to be 40 or 50 pounds, and that's pretty easy for most people to just lift and um, take somewhere. Um, there are so many different reasons bikes get stolen. Um, there's kind of a misconception that nice bikes get stolen. Anything gets stolen. Um, there's, you know, um, it'll go to either unscrupulous dealers or, you know, people just sell it at a, at a you know, sidewalk sale. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the, one of the downsides of, of biking in a city. And, and you'll, you'll hear from a lot of people that the reason they, they don't bike is they don't have a good place to store it. Um, there are a few good solutions to that part of the problem, at least, um, this, uh, this company I know in New York called Unipod has a really great um, locked secure solution, but um, you know they've just run into issues with the city who's really setting these very ridiculous hoops for their business to, to go through. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I think if we really do wanna talk about um, mass adoption of, of bikes in the city. We need to talk about uh, mass storage solutions for people's bikes. There were there were a couple solutions on the thread. I don't know if any, but there was a storage one. Yeah. One pod? Yeah, yeah I think, uh, I, you know, um, I think Unipod was mentioned uh, a few times. Um, oh, you know, how do you spell that, Unipod? They spell it uh, O-O-N-E-E. -E. Um, and yeah, they're, they're a, a Brooklyn based, uh, company and they've done a few successful installations. Um, so, you know, we're really kind of rooting for them to, to scale this up and, and it, it's, it's a, it's a solution that could, that could be done pretty instantly. And then there was a skunk lock. <laughs> I'm tempted to try this. I mean, uh. I, I, I checked that out. It's a, it's a lock with a pepper spray built into it. So if you cut it, it will release the pepper spray into the thief's face. <laughs> um, that sounds crazy enough to maybe work. Um, and then there was that other one of like this, this thing that just looked like a, a, a cartoon sized bike lock that weighs something like 13 pounds. And, um, you know, it's got like a, a, a you know, forearm sized shackle that I think you could cut through, but it would just take hours and hours and hours. And someone else said, uh, give training as uh, in uh, bike mechanics and they, they were using this, the, uh, the approach where you could, um, it was like the social science method of making it so that people didn't need to steal. I, I'd, I'd love to see that as well. Um, you know, I, I think in, in any event, you know, we as a society as large, we need to move away from criminal justice and police-based solutions that are not solutions. Um, you know, and in the case of, um, you know, NYPD in particular, if you report your bike stolen, they'll be like, oh, great. Yeah, that sucks. And you're not going to get any solution. So, you know, we, we, I think with any solution, how, how do we really address what's actually causing these problems and not just react um, 
in a way that involves an incredibly biased uh, police response. Yeah. And so which solution are you gonna use? My, my case is a little interesting. I actually have a, uh, a third bike in my stable that I usually uh, use for locking up on the street. It's a little less uh, pristine, a little less fun to ride than, uh, than this one. But, you know, um, I didn't spend that much for it. And if it disappears, uh, my heart's not going to be broken. So <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to dig that up and, uh, and 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 might have to go with that the next time I'm in Manhattan for uh, for more than 20 minutes at a time. I totally don't recommend this, but I did have a brakeless bike for a while and nobody steals it. Find <laughs> <laughs> it like one block away. Yeah, <laughs> I very quickly realized this thing is not safe i've i've heard I've, I've definitely heard that as a as an origin story for um you know fixies and messenger culture um your breakless fixies and messenger culture that you know um the they would try to steal them and try to ride them and crash right in their face first on their head because they didn't know how to ride a breakless fix so I, I i don't know if that's uh i don't know if i'm ready for that especially uh especially in manhattan you need to break a lot <laughs> there's a lot of stuff coming at you you're in brooklyn uh, i recently moved to queens actually oh, cool. uh, so i have to update my twitter bio i'm uh, i'm now a queens resident and how is how is biking in new york um how is biking in new york it's uh you know, when it's good, it's great. Um, you know, there's, there's really when it's good, there's, there's no better way to, to, to travel throughout the city. Um, and, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, how can I say this? Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's still for a city that shouldn't be as car focused as it is, you know, there's still just a, a car bias and a lot of leadership. And, um, you know, what we've really seen in the, in this 2020 year, there's been this tremendous demand for biking. Um, the, the people have really spoken and, you know, the bike counts are a record everywhere, but, you know, in an official capacity, the infrastructure is really not kept up. Um, and, you know, even protected lanes have issues and are, and are blocked by cars and trucks. Um, and, you know, frankly, we, we, we have a mayor that really doesn't seem to see the, the benefit of this, of, do you, of biking. Do you have a theory on why that is? Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, there, there's just, uh, I, I think you really see a age divide in um, in politics, and you really see people of an older generation um, view cars as a as a kind of a privilege, especially in the political class. It's it's a way of just you know a politician with their um, placard that they can steal parking with. You know that's a perk. That's something they worked for. And there's still um, there's still plenty of people in a leadership class in New York that think that riding transit is for schlubs and uh, and bike riding is for kids. And thankfully, that is changing. 
And um, I think you see in a new generation of New York leaders, that attitude is dying out completely. And um, um, after the exciting election of 2020, we're gonna have an even wilder one here in 2021 with a new mayor and other citywide office and uh, two thirds of the city council seats will be open. And um, it's, it's, that really could, um, could portend some exciting changes. Who, uh, who are the people to watch for mayor? Um, mayor's a, mayor is a tricky one. There's, um, one, uh, guy recently, uh, declared his candidacy, Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough president. He is a regular bike rider. He's drawn fire for his other street safety positions though. Um, there's the, the city comptroller, Scott Stringer, who's, um, made made efforts at um i think he's put out plans or, or made efforts about it um but i think the really exciting action is on the city council level um and you know in new york um city council members do have um an enormous amount of influence in terms of what actually goes on in their neighborhoods and i think what we see there is a group of grassroots leaders who understand the complete picture of how cycling fits into a sustainable, equitable um, city for all. So, you know, definitely looking forward to that. Um, honestly, with our current mayor, uh, we're kind of running out the clock um, on street safety and many, many other issues. There's a general sense that he's just kind of checked out of his job and, um, what's the really unfortunate thing he mayor de blasio got a lot of support for his first mayor run with the vision zero initiative and ironically 2020 is going to be the deadliest year for pedestrians and cyclists of his term and that's going back to 2014. this is after we had three two months of basically no traffic on the roads and we're seeing record numbers of of people getting killed on our streets it's uh um, it, it, it's, uh, it's very discouraging, uh, in that regard. So we, we've, we've got lots of positive and lots of negative at the same time. It is a mystery to me that he didn't, he just, it was like right there for the taking, you know? It's, it's right, you know, it, it's, it's right. There's so much that that's right there. And, you know, even in the colder, we've, we've had some pretty cold days this week. And there are still thousands of people crossing the East River bridges by bike, um, and that's that's not the uh, that you know that's not a, a, a chill little climb. So um, you know there there's people want to do it, and um, thankfully also New York City has one of the best activist bases. Um, organizations like Transportation Alternatives that have really um, made street safety a political issue have set the stage for these these grassroots candidates you know i just love the the activist ecosystem in new york city for street safety and all sorts of other um environmental and uh, social justice initiatives i go on twitter and I, I it's like it's so easy to find extremely knowledgeable people it's like they're giving them away over there on twitter <laughs> <laughs> 
absolutely it's uh you know the the, the twitter experience I've, I've learned so much about so much um you know i really um street safety activism was kind of my gateway into a lot of other stuff but i've just found topics of like um you know farming and and rural issues and you know especially with the pandemic all sorts of um viral epidemiologists and it's what i, what I love is just the sense of that there is so much knowledge in the world and you know with with twitter the really good stuff uh they don't have to worry about gatekeepers anymore they can really share you know their unfiltered expertise and i've, I've learned so much about so much from that yeah so that would be the the upside of like yes yeah yes uh, i i'm i'm, I'm it, it's the very 90s utopian version of the of the online space so i i like to to hold space for myself for a little bit of that it, it, i we just wish there was like a snark free i mean a little snark but like yeah. you know we where you you had people could actually talk about ideas without getting you know trolled for yeah yeah it's uh for like people who just literally just want to talk about it absolutely um you know i think the the secret for me on twitter is to make very liberal use of the block and mute functions um you know i'm not a i'm not a public figure my tweets are not protected by any First Amendment or anything like that. Um, I kind of treat my feed as my house. If you're going to say dumb stuff in my house, you're going to leave. Yeah. But yeah, this was, uh, I'm, you know, um, a lot of times with this stuff and uh, normal conversation with, with my friends, you know, it's like, oh my God, the bikes and the city stuff again. So when I, when I find a, uh, an audience that wants to hear what I have to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on it. So thank you for this, uh, this opportunity. Thank you, Philip. Yeah, and, uh, any, you know, anytime you have anything else, you have any, uh, you want to talk about bike lights, for example. I have thoughts on bike lights. Um, if we want to, if we want to do, uh, if we want to do another segment on that, I, 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 you know, it's uh, it's getting dark early. Uh, I'm doing a lot of riding in the early morning hours. I have thoughts on bike lights. Would you want to sum them? Can you? Can they be? <laughs> yeah, I can. I can sum. I can sum it up very quickly. At least in my uh, New York experience, I either have um, lights that blind or no lights at all. And wow. yeah, yeah, it, it, it seems that uh, many New York cyclists have not quite found the happy medium uh, of, of uh, practical bike lights that make you visible, but don't blind the others oncoming. Okay, and how do you do that? And you like lights, lights that do blind. Not, not blind. Happy no, blind. not 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 blind. It, it's uh, you know there there's uh, there's there's kind of positioning to make sure they're they're you know angled out of eyesight and you know riding in the the city. It's not riding on a country road. You don't really need a headlight to light your path. Um, right. There usually is, an, except in rare circumstances, there is usually enough ambient street lighting. Right. Um, so, so then light sort of becomes a, I, you know, see me, I'm here in this sea of car lights and yeah. lights. Yeah. yeah. I, 
usually do the same thing. I'll put mine on flash. If I'm, uh, I, I use my light day and night. I'll put it on flash unless I'm like out in a dark area. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, and just, you know, um, you'll, you'll, especially on the bridge paths, um, you know, it, it, it can get a little, uh, can get a little, a little blinding. So, you know, it's, uh, you, you can, they're, they're, we can chill on that a little bit. Um, okay. So like when you go over, when you're on a bicycle only path, turn your lights off or turn your lights not, not off, but you know, the, the, the low setting. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's just, just, uh, hate to use a car analogy, but you know, you dim your high beams when there's someone approaching, like it's, right. know, um, there, there's, there's something, something similar to that. Yeah. I'm with that. Yeah. Well, I think you should do a blog post, Philip, about the happy medium and, uh, Bike lights. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, I, yeah, that, that, that might be a good idea. Okay. Don, you want to resume your MC role? And... <laughs> um, my personal favorite bike light. Are we still talking about bike lights, though? I don't know. Should we take it out? Oh, just the transition, you know, if you want to segue, Is it... you could segue. I still want to give a shout out to Lasagna, though. They had that one. There was that one model. It was made out of metal. Then they stopped making it. So what am I talking about? Anyways, bike talk. Let's go to the outro, right? Nick? I rise in the morning and greet the day. Pull out the bike and I'm on my way. And transportation shows I care. Every turn of the pedal cleans the air. Green in the green. I'm saving the planet, just like my friends Daryl, Sean, Toby, and Janet. No greenhouse gas, a tiny carbon footprint up your ass. I'm on a motherfucking bike. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is Bike Talk PFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 